name is Stephanie Chizik, and I'm editor-in-chief of Codings Pro Magazine. To help celebrate our 20th anniversary, we're introducing a new podcast series to highlight some of the key players in both the magazine and the codings industry over the past 20 years. These interviews will offer lessons learned from the past, as well as a look ahead at the future and what might be on the horizon over the next 20 years. Episode one of this mini-series features a conversation between Codings Pro staff writer Ben DeBose and Lou Frank, who's known in the industry as the founder of Codings Pro. Today, Lou works as the Director of Business Development at Codings for Industry, which you may know as CFI. Portions of this interview are included in the November 2021 print issue of Codings Pro, as well as complete coverage of the anniversary and our milestones over the years. So if you haven't seen those yet, look out for them in the print issue, which you can also access online at codingspromag.com. Without further delay, let's get on to the interview with Lou Frank. Here's Ben. Thanks, Stephanie. As she just mentioned, we're joined today by Lou Frank, known in the industry as the founder of Codings Pro. Lou, I think a good place to start would be with your personal biography. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career in the industry, as well as what you're doing today. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity. It's nice to be along today. Um, so let's see, where do I start? Um, graduated from the University of Maryland with a business degree in the mid-70s. After graduation, my hurrah trip was a 10-week motorcycle trip across the United States that ended in San Diego. It was November when I arrived there. The weather was beautiful. I decided to stay for a while, and that ended up being for just about 40 years. Um, I began my professional career in an ad agency there, and then a few years later launched my own agency. My agency did ads. We did packaging. We did public relations. This was all in the old-school world of print. Uh, so different today with digital. I ended up with a client in the codings business, uh, a company that a lot of people might have heard of, uh, and that led to a, yet another client in the codings business. Uh, during those years working uh, with those companies, uh, I ended up at a large trade show in Las Vegas called World of Concrete. In early 2001, I, I'd been to several Worlds of Concrete by that time. I went looking for a magazine at that show, a magazine to advertise in, to reach out to the coatings applicator. I was looking for that focus. I was looking for a publication that delivered content for all the challenges those people face. After a lot of hours of walking the show halls, I honestly could not find that magazine. Uh, I was walking the halls with a, a real nice person next to me, and I said, you know what, we should create this magazine. And she turned back to me and she said, okay, when do we start? And that was really the germ of what happened to grow into Codings Pro. And what are you doing today as far as your current day work? Oh, interesting. Well, uh, fast forward, uh, obviously, uh, AMP, now AMP, owns Cody's Pro Magazine. I did a little bit of work with uh, NACE back in those days, um, mm -hmm. worked with another small trade association, and decided to leave San Diego for the Chesapeake Bay. When I got here, I had a phone call from one of my early advertisers with Codings Pro, a company called Codings for Industry based in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I was made an offer to be become a part of that company, 
and run their sales and marketing program. And I've enjoyed doing that for the last half dozen years or so. Uh, we're having a good success, but it's mm-hmm. interesting being on the other side now out of the media business and in the business of those who are advertising in the magazine. It's quite interesting, but we're doing well. Thanks for asking. Yes, no problem. And glad to hear that uh, you're enjoying it. Let's step back since obviously we're celebrating the 20th anniversary here, and you touched on this already, but walk us through the formation of Codings Pro in 2001 and your role in that as the so-called founder. What was well, I, the landscape of the yeah, industry, if you will, and just generally your vision and why this was a good fit? No, I, I appreciate that. So when I got back to San Diego after that trade show in Las mm-hmm. Vegas in early 2001, I reached out to some talented freelancers in the community, people I had worked with for years. I shared the magazine concept with a writer-photographer he was in. I tapped a talented designer uh, to help build the logo and the look of what the first several pages might look like she was in. And I shared the concept with uh, an ad sales professional I had known for, at that point, nearly 20 years. He had was someone who sold me advertising, and I thought he was pretty good at it. So I gave him a call, and I said, what do you think? Uh, is this a concept we can sell? And he was in. And so with those handful of really good people, uh, I developed the concept. I also had a couple of magazine publishers, um, mentors, if you will. They were out of a large publishing company in the northern Midwest. I visited with them both by phone and in person several times during 2001, trying to make sure that what I was doing was staying on track. With their coaching, I started making some phone calls, and then I I burned up some of the uh, airline miles that I had stashed away mm-hmm. to make visit the industry people. And I was looking to discover what the industry wanted, what it needed in terms of content. I was reminded that, well, in the publishing business, your revenue typically comes from the advertisers, your real customer is the reader, and I never lost sight of that. Um, we launched the magazine in November of that year, 2001. We put the first issue in the mail on November 1st, which I was really proud of. That Everybody on the team worked crazy hard to make that happen. Um, by the way, the editor and I really had to start with story number one someplace, and this is a story that not a lot of people know. We flew up to Idaho as part of a multi-city tour to go capture our first story with interviews and and photography gear. And our first story was about the building that housed all the computers that monitored every nuclear reactor in North America. We thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, a lot of people um, maybe don't even understand that all the reactors are monitored in one place. So if there's a problem, uh, everything can, uh, all the emergency stuff can happen quickly. Uh, interestingly, Ben, that was the morning of September 11th, 2001. Wow. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, we were not able to get within <laughs> two miles of that. Uh, the security was crazy. Yeah. Um, ultimately, we were able to get the story, but it was nothing like what we had planned. We ended up sitting for two days, hoping something would happen. It, finally, we were able to get just pieces of story, but we weren't ever able to get actually to the building. Uh, so it, it was quite interesting. Um, 
So, you know, that, that's sort of the formation of what happened. And uh, the editor and I went on to another two different stops later in the week uh, after airplanes were allowed to fly again. And um, we ended up getting a really quite an array of stories. Yeah. What was your vision as far as um, what it would do for the industry that wasn't being done? Was it, you know, one of the hallmarks of Codings Pro, for example, is speaking from the perspective of the contractor and this idea that a layman can pick it up and perhaps find out some job site tips as far as ways that uh, they can do projects that maybe they weren't doing before what was sort of your vision when you laid out this magazine as far as how this could serve the industry and uh, how other people in the industry could benefit from it? Oh, interesting question. Um, so first, let me just start off with 20 years ago, the industry was a good bit more fractured than it is today. Mm -hmm. You had lots and lots of small coatings manufacturers, mid-sized coatings manufacturers, large coatings manufacturers. The same is true of the applicator community. There were several excellent applicators out there, and, and by and large, those guys were kind of unsure of us. Um, okay. They felt like perhaps another uh, industry magazine, that which belonged to JPCL um, uh, or SSPC, it was JPCL, um, they thought, well, you know, who's this Cody's Pro group? Um, there were also a lot of guys with pickup trucks. And they were out doing coatings. They hadn't gotten certifications that are generally required today. One of the big service things that I felt the magazine could do was to foster safety. Uh, very early on, I developed a um, real clear direction to everybody who worked with the magazine that um, uh, um, unless we cited otherwise in caption, we would not run a photograph that didn't show proper safety equipment, proper PPE. Mm. I felt very strongly that uh, um, some of the folks without the certifications were putting not only their jobs at risk, but themselves and their staff. And I really wanted the magazine to try to drive home how important uh, the certifications, especially safety certifications, were to get things done. Um, back then as well, SSPC was just getting started on their QP program, so uh, they didn't really have a, a, a well-founded program that was uh, being widely adopted by applicating teams. Um, SSPC's, I'm sorry, NACE's CFP program had been out there for a few years, mm -hmm. and I was lucky to get my um, NACE card in 2002. Uh, interesting, Ben, my number is under 8,000. And I don't know what the number is today, but um, I think it approaches six figures. So um, that program has obviously been very, very successful. But the, there were no programs from NACE for the applicator except for the inspector program. So big difference to, from where we are today when you look at all the combined programs that are now available through AMP, which are deep and rich and really quite thorough. That's interesting. Along the way, yeah, along the way, there were many providers. So let's talk about consolidation for a sec. Along the way, there were many providers of equipment and paint. Today, with consolidation, there are far fewer. Uh, I mean, just look at big paint formulators and delivery manufacturers. So you're looking at equipment and the, uh, the uh, juice that goes through that equipment. Um, 
there's, it seems today there, there are announcements monthly of acquisitions. Um, didn't see that back then. There were many, many more choices of uh, options for what product you chose, and there were a variety of options of uh, equipment because there were multiple. The, today, equipment is dominated by one large manufacturer in the northern Midwest. Back then, there were a number of other equipment manufacturers, some domestic and some international that were selling here in the U.S. Um, so uh, the interesting thing about that from the applicator's perspective is you had a very wide array of sales professionals from both equipment and paint manufacturers that were willing to invest their time and effort to help the contractor. Um, I, I know firsthand that that has changed today. It's um, harder to get a more stretched out sales staff to give you the kind of time and effort that's really needed. So that's really quite a difference. Um, I felt the magazine was a really good fit for the industry, and I believe it still is. I'm honestly tickled that several of the staff I hired are still at Coatings Pro. It remains a good fit because of the skill, talent, and determination of the Coatings contractor and how he or she will make or break a well-executed job. The magazine, I think, does a great job assuring that that message still gets across. Um, and honestly, Ben, until machines can paint stadiums, bridges, and intricate petrochem pipes and equipment, this will always be true. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious if there was a point in the early going of Coatings Pro where you sensed that Coatings Pro would become a success. Because with any startup, <laughs> there's certainly risk that it might not make it. And as you mentioned, people in the industry were not that familiar with you and the group at the time. Was there a point in which you knew, hey, this is going to make it? Well, I, I confess I had some scary moments. Um, it was pretty interesting. We had the first issue of the magazine out on November 1st, 2001. And just a few days later, I remember the editor and I flew to Atlanta. I had, I don't know, 50 magazines or something in my suitcase. And we started handing them out. Nobody had seen them. So few people even knew they were coming out. And I had a lot of surprised looks. And frankly, um, and you, as you might imagine, people from other magazines sort of looked at us like, man, what are you doing? Um, there was definitely some scary moments. I was told by several people when I endeavored to get this magazine going that it was likelier much more risk to do my magazine than it was going to be to launch a new bar or restaurant. Uh, that sent shivers down my spine. I will suggest that um, had the magazine not succeeded, I'd probably be hosting this interview while greeting people at Walmart. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm very glad it did. Fortunately, the magazine uh, was profitable by the start of the fourth issue, believe it or not, and we never looked back. So much of that has to do with um, – really has to do with one of my former staff, Karen Christofferson, who did an incredible job manage, managing the production while I engaged with the editorial and sales teams at various trade shows and sites and going on, on uh, job site visits and so forth. There were a lot of travels in those days. Um, Elena Elizaraga and Stephanie Chizik both came to Cutting Throw Pro uh, while I was involved and They've done an amazing job to further its success. Both of them know Karen, and um, it was um, uh, Karen did a lot of coaching for those two as we got going. Um, 
even then as is today, I think my, uh, my, at that time, staying in front of our readers really helped assure that the team around me was continually guided by having the magazine stay up with those reader needs. So let's talk about, you know, you say reader needs, and that means the industry at large. In the 20 years since, what are some of the ways that Codings Pro itself has affected the industry? What are some of the changes, and hopefully in a positive way, that the magazine has brought about to the industry at large? A couple different things. I think that under Stephanie's guidance, the magazine continually updates readers on what to do in terms of technique and business practices. Uh, uh, that hasn't changed, and I think it remains a really important part of what the magazine does for the industry. Uh, if you think about it, any magazine like this garners a community of people who have like ideas and like challenges. Um, I think the magazine amplifies the importance of the applicator uh, and his or her team of professionals on each of these jobs. Uh, all of us in the industry understand that we have an owner involved, we have a specifier or architect involved, we have an inspector almost always involved, but it's that team of applicators that make or break what's going on. Of course, one of the things that the magazine launched with, and I don't think we've ha ever had an issue without it, is the section of the magazine called Never Again. And in that section, we've, uh, I, we had it even in that first issue. It's a nonstop opportunity for readers to learn from others' mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think that's really useful. And, yeah, it's – from the metrics that I've seen, it's always one of the most read and engaged with pieces of editorial content that we have just because, yeah, I think we all learn through uh, – Certainly bad experiences, but definitely if it happens to someone else because it could prevent it happening to us. So, yeah, those people that are willing to share their stories, that's really useful and a big part of how uh, this magazine really has a unique niche in the industry. And I want to transition to the industry at large, not just Codings Pro, because when we're talking the last 20 years, that's a significant chunk of time. And. The landscape is very different in 2021 relative to the fall of 2001, which is what we were talking about uh, leading off this podcast with regards to the founding of Codings Pro and the conditions at the time. How has the industry at large changed over the past 20 years? Not necessarily from what Codings Pro has done, because we've been discussing that, but just overall, what's different about the landscape that you work in now with Codings in 2021 versus the protective coatings industry in uh, – 2001. Well, interesting. There are several things involved. Um, first, we should talk about technology. The whole concept of a podcast didn't exist 20 years ago. Digital delivery, digital delivery of content came by way of sending someone an email, and even putting attachments to the email wasn't necessarily easy back then. So we've come an amazing long way in terms of technology with websites and so on. But the biggest change in the industry is consolidation. Um, and with that has come a level of professionalism. Uh, perhaps the best way to talk about it is the folks that um, are in, now own Codings Pro. Uh, most recently, it's the consolidation of two major trade associations, which, by the way, was discussed with me by a board member in mm -hmm. 2002. 
but things just couldn't make it happen in 2002, 2003. Um, and uh, I, so I, this has been in the offing for a long, long time. But the, the transition to form AMP was a big change. It, it enables global delivery of training and the stories found in magazines like Codings Pro. Um, and it can only help make our industry more successful. The other big change is things that Bob Chalker at AMP has really worked very, very hard to foster over the last many years, and that's an elevation of professionalism in the way people learn and in the way people approach managing themselves and other people. I think that's um, – uh, I think you see that same sort of thing in some of the larger companies that dominate the industry in terms of uh, paint products and the delivery equipment. It's uh, a very high level of professionalism. It's a high level of accountability. That stuff wasn't back uh, uh, really. It, it was discussed, but it really wasn't in play as much back then. Um, let's see. So two other things uh, come to mind. Uh, a shift in codings development especially in the, on the environmental side. There was a lot of discussion about water-based coatings in, in the early 2000s, but they were shunned. There's a uh, fundamental chemical reason as to why water-based coatings are far more challenging to make as effective as solvent-based mm -hmm. coatings. Today, we, we face um, a real need to enhance the low VOC side of all coatings. Um, coatings for Industry is uh, developing quite a program around low and no VOC coatings so that we're compliant throughout the United States, including South Coast Air Quality Management District, which is Southern California's, uh, and it represents the most stringent in the country. Ultimately, everybody's going to end up going there. So um, we, and I'm sure others, are focusing a lot of development energy on that. Um, and the final area that's changed in the in the last 20 years are inst installation protocols, the way application is done, the way the specs are written, uh, the demanding way in which um, the application goes down, and then an inspector is able to to look at it. Back 20 years ago, when I went through my NACE training for um, to be a, a CIP inspector. Uh, everything was in, in the analog world. Um, there wasn't a device that you could lay on top of a coating, press a button, and in the instant see what its film thickness was. Mm. Uh, that's, that device is not only available from several fine manufacturers today, um, but it now Bluetooths to a computer, so you don't even have to um, make mention of where you did it or when you did it. It's just you click a button, and it's all taken care of for you. Um, that's a huge change. So it's accountability both in terms of application and in terms of management um, uh, that maybe is a good plus out of this consolidation over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. You touched on this at a very high level, but are there any particular, I don't know, projects, technologies, products, services, what have you? Are there any particular things within those categories that um, – you've seen over the past 20 years as far as things that stand out to you? Um, not really in terms of major projects, but uh, as I just mentioned, technologies and products and, and the way they're managed are different. Um, it's an interesting question. So let me start by saying that um, uh, anecdotally, uh, I was involved recently 
with those who specify coatings for large structures, infrastructure pieces, uh, bridges and the like, in one of the country's largest states. And um, while I was on the phone with those guys, I was delighted to understand that they were open to seeing new technologies. Uh, they were open to a process to win acceptance for those new technologies and so forth. Um, but to, do, to, to get certified to be in there, there is a challenging and expensive process. Um, once the new technologies, so from a manufacturer's perspective, uh, you're going to spend well into six figures for just one state, by the way, to get certified to be among those codings that can be accepted by a bidding contractor. Um, however, uh, we live in a, a very risk-averse environment here. And once a new technology has been accepted by the sanctioning body, General, the contractor, the painting contractor, really does have the option to choose one of the new ones or one of his or her old standby coatings. Um, and I get that. Again, it's risk averse. Um, and the, the facing a possibility of a failure on a multi-million dollar application project is always frightening. But even though the newer technologies can often be better, this risk averse is, I think, working against uh, the development of some of the newer uh, uh, products that are out there. So we'll see how that changes uh, over time. Um, and I might also mention that um, as a principal of coatings for industry, we're a 50-year-old formulator of a wide array of coatings, not only for infrastructure and floors, but all kinds of other things, including coatings for jet engines, believe it or not. Um, by way of example, we have four or five different formulations of a new technology, newer technology, polyspartic floor coatings. They wear well, they're 100% solids, they're odor-free, but a lot of applicators simply say, you know, I want an epoxy floor. So that's it, uh, the example that I might use of uh, a big applicator who says, you know, I'm so used to epoxy, just give me your epoxy. Epoxy is also 100% solids, but its performance is different um, than a polyaspartic coating in, in a variety of different ways. So getting folks to adopt the newer technologies, I see as actually a, a challenge that we face today. Yeah, that's interesting because it leads into my next question perfectly. Where do you see the industry changing in the next 20 years? If we're chatting in 2041, what's going to be different than 2021 in some of those areas potentially? Well, you know, I hope to be around in 20 years and, and see how <laughs> That's this a good start. works. We will give that a – we're going to give that our best shot. Um, but what I see is there's likely to be further consolidation. Uh, you're going to see bigger guys gobbling up medium-sized guys that are long, strong, in many cases privately owned companies. But at some point, there's going to be a change there, just kind of by definition of what it's what will happen. Here's what I see as cool that will come out of it, though. Um, you have the smaller and medium-sized companies. Once acquisitions occur, it's not uncommon to see uh, talented people being replaced by someone from the large company that says, well, uh, I, I don't need you anymore because you're just duplicating an effort somebody else has. And what you're going to find, I think, then, is uh, that uh, entrepreneurs will emerge out of these uh, consolidations and that with those people, 
and also talented young people coming out of colleges and taking advantage of some of the training that's available through organizations like AMP. I think we're going to see innovation in both chemistry and application equipment and techniques. Um, now, let me share kind of a, a, a tangible thing on this. This is really cool. One of the coolest things I've seen is the use of heavy lift drones to apply paint products. Okay, so you're not going to likely paint the underside of a bridge with one of these drones. But if you think in terms of a large um, fuel storage tank where the surface is it's just a giant flat cylinder, essentially, um, uh, you, you may find a drone being able to do that. And I'll confess that Otis for Industry is at the forefront of this. We'll have something to announce at some point on it. Um, but uh, we're well deep into this, uh, this type of application and the right kind of coatings that go with it. But, hey, get this. It might mean that applicators have to get an FAA license to fly that drone. So, seriously, I see a continuation of improvement in low and no VSC coatings and even more urgent need to hire and train really qualified professionals to apply those coatings correctly. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point because you can have all the technology in the world, but if you don't have an applicator that's able to uh, apply it correctly, then what does it really mean? I think that's a really interesting perspective and something to keep in mind as the technology evolves even more. Lou, before we sign off, where can people go to get more information from you or from CF, uh, CFI? Feel free to talk oh, well, about the website or anything else that an interesting listener might could use. Oh, aren't you kind? I appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm always excited to get emails from Coatings Pro readers. I still keep in touch with several of them. Um, Lou.frank at CFICoatings.com. That's Lou.frank at CFICoatings.com. And, of course, CFICoatings.com is the web portal for Coatings for Industry. Uh, they can look at a variety of things. Um, you know, everything from uh, very, very specialized coatings for turbine engines. Um, we, interestingly, we supply the, the paint for the inside of turbine engines for about half the jets uh, globally. Um, and um, even more, perhaps, for uh, power generation turbines. So that's just one side of the business. But we've got some great floor coatings and some very interesting specialized infrastructure coatings as well. Always happy to talk about those. But moreover, perhaps the thing that it's exciting for me is to always hear from a Cody's Pro reader. I'm happy to entertain any questions from those guys um, and gals, and I appreciate the uh, uh, the fact that they're still readers of a good publication. Outstanding. Thank you for everything you've done. And, folks, this is where we'll leave things on today's episode. If you want more information on our end of things, of course, Lou mentioned where you can check out CFI. But for us, you can check out the AMP website at ampp.org. And, of course, you can visit CoatingsProMag.com for all sorts of news related to the protective coatings industry. With that, we'll sign off. For Lou Frank, the basically founder of CoatingsPro, I'm Ben Dubose. Thanks, as always, for listening. And please come back soon for another new podcast from the CoatingsPro interview series.